This is the Green Street News, your weekly update on environmental health. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts, welcome back. On the subject board today, the FDA has come up with some guidelines on just how much lead you can have in baby food. The use of pesticides in agriculture is exacerbating climate change. And a new study finds that plastic recycling isn't really working. Surprise, surprise. Then we'll hear the story of the old nuclear power plant near Boston and how the company closing it down has figured out how to save a bundle of money by putting everyone at risk. Diane Turco of Cape Downwinders is our guest. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty Wood, so what's new in the world of environmental health this week? It's, I'm speechless. There's, you know, you ask me this every week, and there's I do. so much to talk about. Well, so, if anybody okay. knows, you know. Yeah, okay. So here's an article that was published in the New York Times by Christina Jewett. The title is, FDA Proposes Limits for Lead in Baby Food. Oh, it's about time. They've been working on this for a while. Yeah. So okay, what happened? It's not so great. The Food and Drug Administration has proposed maximum limits for the amount of lead in baby foods like mashed fruits and vegetables and dry cereals after years of studies revealed that many processed products contained levels known to pose a risk of neurological and developmental impairment. The agency issued draft guidance which would not be mandatory for food manufacturers to abide by. The guidelines, if adopted, would allow the agency to take enforcement action against companies that produced foods that exceeded the new limits. So these are voluntary limits that have absolutely no teeth, no enforcement possibility until the FDA formally adopts them, and who knows how long that's going to be. You can have wetted baby food or unleaded baby food. Just like gasoline. There you go. Okay. The new limits aimed at foods for children under two do not address grain-based snacks that have also been found to contain high levels of heavy metals. And they do not limit other metals like cadmium that the agency and many consumer groups have detected in infant foods in previous years. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt once more, but last week we had this show with Mary Beth Kirkham, and she was talking about how microplastics are accelerating the uptake of cadmium in plants. Right, so, cadmium that's in the soil. Yeah. That's because microplastics or any type of plastic, as you know, is like static, right? And yeah. it attracts things. Exactly right. And it attracts chemicals, and clearly it is attracting heavy metals as well. Yep. Flint, Michigan was a big deal. The entire country was aware of what was going on there because there was lead in the water. Right. And it was impacting the lives of young children. They have determined that there is no safe level of exposure to lead. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure about proposed maximum limits. I just don't get this. Yeah. But anyway, okay. Jane Houlihan, Research Director for Healthy Babies Bright Futures, a nonprofit called The Guidelines Disappointing, quote, it doesn't go far enough to protect babies from neurodevelopmental damage from lead exposure, she said. Lead is in almost every baby food we've tested, and the action levels that the FDA has set will influence almost none of that food. She said the limits would address some of the highest levels they had found, but more broadly appeared to codify the status quo. 
Okay, and then going back to what I just said, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is the CDC, has said that there is no safe level of lead for children who more readily absorb the heavy metal. And the FDA proposed setting a lead level lower than 10 parts per billion in yogurts, fruits, or vegetables, and no more than 20 parts per billion in root vegetables and in dry infant cereals. According to the FDA, the new voluntary limits would result in significant reductions in exposure to lead from food while ensuring availability of nutritious foods. The move is part of the agency's, quote, closer to zero initiative, which is aimed at reducing the exposure of young children to toxins such as lead, arsenic, cadmium, and mercury. Lots of talk, little action. Yeah, that's what it seems like. More, you know, reports and voluntary guidelines, but... I don't know. How do you get lead out of root vegetables? Or cadmium. Cadmium yeah. is actually more toxic than lead. Some scientists think so. Yeah. Yeah. When we were doing that work on, you know, children's toys, um, and they were talking about lead in toys that come from, that we import from China and yeah. other places, and they were so concerned about that, but then they started using cadmium, and then they were saying, whoa, 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 cadmium's even more toxic yeah. than, le- than lead. Yeah. Okay. All right, so let's talk about another one. Okay. This is also very, very interesting. It was published in Grist by Maria Peraza Rose, and the title is How Pesticides Intensify Global Warming. How Pesticides mm. Intensify Global Warming. Okay. A new study shows that pesticides are a key contributor to climate change from their manufacturing, transportation, and application all the way to their degradation and disposal. That's according to researchers at the Pesticide Action Network North America, or PANA, who say that while pesticides have been critical tools in agricultural production, their efficacy is on the decline while climate change is driving their increased use. And this is why. According to Panna, the pesticide-climate change connection is a loop. Pesticides add emissions to the atmosphere that accelerate climate change, while warming climates stress agricultural systems and increase the number of pests and insects requiring more pesticides. Compared to agriculture chemicals like nitrogen fertilizer with well-known negative environmental impacts, greenhouse gas emissions from pesticides are understudied and underestimated. Producing one kilogram of pesticide requires on average 10 times more energy than one kilogram of nitrogen fertilizer. Some pesticides like sulfuryl fluoride used on insects like termites and beetles are themselves greenhouse gases. Emitting one ton of sulfuryl fluoride is the equivalent of emitting nearly 5,000 tons of CO2. Researchers also say that oil and gas companies add to the issue and profit from it. 99% of synthetic pesticides are derived from petroleum. Okay, you want to comment? So this one pesticide is 5,000 times more harmful than CO2 for global warming. That's, you're right. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, this is also about the interconnectedness of all human activities around fossil fuels, the use of fossil fuels, and toxic chemicals. Everything it's, is connected. Pam. Everything is connected. Everything and environment. almost every toxic chemical has a petroleum base, has a fossil fuel base to it. Yeah. Aye, aye, aye. Okay. California uses nearly 20% of the pesticides applied annually across the United States. 20%. The state supplies a third of the country's vegetables and two-thirds of the country's fruits and nuts. Because fruits and vegetables have such high value, any losses would be expensive, causing California farmers to use nearly five times more pesticides than the national average to avoid losses. It's all about the money. Always about the money. Sure. I mean, you have a valuable crop. You want to protect it, so you're going to use pesticides. Yep, 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 yep. 
There you go. Okay, so according to Panna, 95% of California farmers are farming conventionally, while only 5% are using organic methods. <laughs> Rising temperatures have led to a drop in crop resilience, heat stress, changing rainfall patterns, more insects, pests, and more places creating higher demand for synthetic chemicals and pesticides. Some research suggests that less than 0.01% of pesticides actually reach their target pests. The excess ends up on other plants or in the soil, water, and air. Hotter temperatures make this problem worse, vaporizing pesticides into a toxic gas, poisoning workers. Researchers say the solution is agroecology, which is farming that emphasizes conservation ecological processes for local conditions and practices like intercropping, where two or more crops grown together to increase biodiversity and promote plant health. It also prioritizes the health and decision-making power of farmers and agricultural workers, which has been shown to improve crop yields, profitability, and resilience against climate impacts. The report says that agroecology leads to better public health, improved food security and sovereignty, and enhanced biodiversity and social benefits. So let's look at the 95% of California farmers who are farming conventionally and ask you how many are gonna start embracing agroecology. And this is actually old news for people who know yeah. how to grow things, right? It's, the it's, idea of intercropping, where yeah, you grow two sure. crops together like marigolds and tomatoes, yeah. right? So that nature is actually protecting the crop that you're, that you're going to be selling. I find this statistic about the amount of pesticide that actually reaches the target pest to be somewhat astonishing. It's one one hundredth of a single percent. 0 0.01. Yeah. 0.01 percent yeah. of, of pesticides actually reach their target organisms. Yeah. So 99.9 percent .9 is going somewhere else into the environment. That's hurting. right. We had this discussion yeah. when they were spraying for mosquitoes for in West New Nile. York City for yeah. West Nile virus, and yeah. they're still doing it. You know, not as much, but the fact is that at that point we were talking about how much of this pesticide that they were using was actually reaching the target mosquito culture. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay, what else you got? Last one here. This is uh, published in Inside Climate News by James Brugers, and the new study finds advanced recycling of plastic using high heat and chemicals is costly and environmentally problematic. The plastics industry's quest to solve the problem of plastic waste through so-called advanced recycling, using chemical additives and sometimes extremely high heat to turn waste back into new plastics, is costly and comes with significant environmental impacts, according to new research from the federal government. Government researchers singled out two prominent advanced technologies, pyrolysis and gasification, as particularly problematic, saying they should not even be considered closed-loop recycling technologies. These technologies require large amounts of energy and emit significant pollutants and greenhouse gases to turn discarded plastics into oil or fuel or chemicals such as benzene, toluene, and xylene, synthetic gases, and a carbon char waste product. This is such a waste of time. Can I just say, we need to turn off the plastic tap and stop trying to invent new ways to recycle plastic, which we shouldn't be or making Or to make in new plastic, place. which actually can't be done very successfully at all. So far, 21 states have enacted laws sought by the U.S. plastics industry that categorize advanced plastics recycling as a manufacturing process, but not waste disposal. Well, that's so they can avoid the waste disposal right. laws, right? But environmentalists say using plastic waste to make new fossil fuels or feedstocks for more plastic further damages the environment and worsens climate change. Wow. 
more traditional methods of recycling using mechanical means to sort, clean, shred, and remold waste plastic performed better on economic and environmental parameters than emerging methods, although it still has technical limitations. Taken together, this is important. The peer-reviewed study by a 12-member Department of Energy team that examined the benefits and trade-offs of current and emerging technologies for recycling illustrates the major challenges ahead as the world seeks ways to handle the 400 million metric tons of plastic waste that's generated globally each year. Well, you know, as long as that cost is being picked up by the plastics manufacturers themselves and not by the public... We don't want any taxpayer dollars spent figuring out how to recycle plastic. It's their problem. They're making billions of dollars. They're the ones that have to fix this. Right. Well, I can tell you that New York State, with the help of some very knowledgeable organizations, including Beyond Plastics, which is a national organization, is looking at legislation called Extended Producer Responsibility laws or EPR laws, okay, that would make these manufacturers take responsibility for the plastic that they are producing without limitation. Shouldn't even take a law. You know, you're going to make something that's polluting and contaminating. It's your job to clean it up. All right. So let me just finish quick. Mankind is producing twice as much plastic waste as two decades ago, with the bulk of it dumped in landfills, burned by incinerators, or littered across the environment, with less than 5% recycled, according to a report last year from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a group that represents developed nations. Experts say plastic was never designed to be recycled. It is made of polymer chains and chemical additives, many of them toxic, meant to give the material different properties such as flexibility, texture, clarity, and color. The varied chemical nature of plastic waste, much of which gets mixed together after it is used once for a few minutes, only adds to the challenge of recycling. A spokesperson for the American Chemistry Council's Plastics Division described the report as, quote, meaty, end quote, adding that the council needs more time to analyze the research before commenting. It's meaty, huh? It was meaty. I wonder what that means. Yeah, I'm worried about all the Legos that my grandchildren <laughs> are, are are playing with and what's going to happen to all of that. So, you know, we're putting these Lego sets back together so that they can be used again by another child and but, not just dump them in black plastic bags or huge plastic tubs that people buy to put Lego parts in. And then just eventually they just clean out their house and they throw them all away. Do you know how many Legos there are in the world? Do you know all the distribution centers in Asia and Africa and, you know, the United Kingdom? I mean, unbelievable. It is a great toy. Can I just say Legos I, are great? No I, question. I, I'll speak no up question. on behalf of Legos, but it's a perfect example of the conundrum that we're in. Yeah. That we've got things that we love that are really great and they're made out of plastic and there's no easy way to make them out of something else. And you, That's right. And, and there's no easy way to actually reuse them or recycle them into another ah, product. Uh -huh. You don't have to recycle them. Keep all the parts, keep the instruction manual, keep the plastic bag, keep the box, put everything back together when you're done and give it to somebody else. Yeah, that's in your the, spare time. That's that's the well, okay. <laughs> but still, that's okay. the that's the solution. Okay. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Nuclear power plants have always been a problem. They are inherently dangerous. 
No matter how carefully they're constructed, nuclear power plants emit radioactive substances that cause cancer, and the waste they produce is also radioactive and will remain so for generations. Nuclear power plants tend to get constructed near big cities, where the demand for electricity is high. One such location is the town of Plymouth, which lies along the coast south of Boston on the edge of Cape Cod Bay. The plant was constructed 50 years ago and was beset with problems throughout its operation. In fact, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission called it one of the worst-run nuclear power plants in the country. The plant was finally shut down on May 31, 2019, and the process of decommissioning or deconstructing the nuclear power plant began. The contractor doing the work is a company called Holtec, an engineering company based in Florida. As part of its agreement to safely decommission the plant, Holtec received the trust fund that had been set up over the years to pay for the decommissioning. They also got the plant itself, the highly valuable real estate right on the water, and all of the nuclear waste material that had been stored on site in Plymouth for years. Getting rid of nuclear waste is a huge problem, and if you're trying to make money, the cheaper the method of getting rid of it, the better. In order to protect our children and future generations, we need to stop nuclear power, and there needs to be some way to manage this waste rather than putting it into the environment. It needs to be kept out of the environment. How that happens, no one still has a good answer. But certainly dumping into a body of water is not the answer. That's Diane Turco, the founder of Cape Downwinders, a self-taught expert on the decommissioning of nuclear power plants. Diane has been trying to protect public health from the known hazards of nuclear power since the 1980s. I was a young mother and I went with a friend who was working on a campaign to shut Pilgrim down and I went to Plymouth and at that meeting there were other young mothers there and one mother said, you know, my daughter has leukemia, we're moving to Maine, we have to get out of here. I'm a teacher at the elementary school and there shouldn't be three other children in her classroom with leukemia. And I came to understand Dr. Richard Clapp's study. Dr. Richard Clapp was with the Massachusetts Cancer Registry and with the Boston University Department of Public Health. He completed a study and found that um, the closer you live to Pilgrim, the incidence of leukemia increased fourfold. Pilgrim was killing us, so that's where I got started. The Pilgrim nuclear power plant is what's called a boiling water reactor. In this kind of reactor, water is pumped up through the reactor core and heated by nuclear fission, a reaction in which the nucleus of an atom is split into two, creating energy. The resulting steam is then piped directly into a turbine to produce electricity. Some of the condensed water is recycled back through the system to be used again. During this process, the water becomes contaminated with radionuclides. When the plant is finally shut down, the remaining water is nuclear waste. So Holtec bought Pilgrim. Before they purchased Pilgrim, they came to Plymouth and they said, we are open and transparent, we will work with the community. And um, this vice president was there and said, we have an impeccable safety record. And this was at the time when there was a near drop at San Onofre by Holtec when they were moving the canisters. And the NRC had just come out with that horrible incident report, damning Holtec, you know, poor management, everything. So I said, uh, so impeccable safety records, so how many nuclear power reactors have you decommissioned? And her answer was zero. 
So even without much experience, Holtec was able to purchase the old nuclear power plant with a promise to work with the community, to do the work carefully, and to be open and transparent about its plans. But there was trouble right away. In 2019, Holtec purchased Pilgrim to decommission the reactor. At that time, our Attorney General, Maura Healy, brought a lawsuit to prevent the license transfer because there were a lot of concerns. Because of that lawsuit, there was a settlement agreement, and within that settlement agreement, Holtec agreed to abide by all Massachusetts laws and regulations. And that's where we right now today are being challenged and trying to hold them accountable to those laws and regulations. And that would mean they cannot discharge the 1.1 million gallons of radioactive water into Cape Cod Bay. Yes, Holtec's plan for getting rid of the radioactive wastewater is simply to dump it into Cape Cod Bay. From Holtec's perspective, it makes sense. Trucking the water away to a safer and more appropriate disposal site would cost a lot of money, even if you could find a facility to accept it. Dumping it back into the bay would cost Holtec almost nothing. And there's the matter of the billion-dollar trust fund. The fund came from money paid by the utility's customers over the 28 years the plant was owned by Boston Edison. It was established to cover the cost of dismantling the reactor once it was shut down. While state officials and citizen groups have worried for years that the money could run out before the decommissioning work was complete, Holtec's projections show that the company will have $252 million left over in the fund when the job is done. $252 million in pure profit. So yes, dumping the nuclear wastewater looks like a great option to Holtec. Holtec plans to do so because it's the cheapest and quickest way to get rid of the water to decommission the plant and walk away with our decommissioning trust fund money. So the community is up in uproar about this, of course, and we have been attempting to hold Holtec accountable along with our legislators and our attorney general um, to not discharge. But Holtec continues to have that on their plan, even though it is clearly illegal, according to the um, settlement agreement. Diane Turco's concern about public health threat from nuclear power and nuclear waste is borne out by many experts, including the world-renowned scientist Dr. Helen Caldicott. A pediatrician who taught at Harvard Medical School, the Australian native helped organize Physicians for Social Responsibility and eventually became its president. Dr. Caldicott has written and lectured extensively on the hazards of nuclear power. Diane Turco became a student of her work. As Dr. Caldicott says, uh, nuclear power plants are cancer factories. And releasing radionuclides into the environment is part of the operation of a nuclear power plant. But we know there's not one safe dose of radionuclides that could not um, cause health impacts. Pilgrim, before it shut down, it was the worst operating nuclear power plant in the United States. And the scram of 2015 was, was um, tagged by the Union of Concerned Scientists as a near miss. I mean, there's so much evidence how poorly this was run and how bad. It was, it's a Mark 1 boiling water reactor. As I mentioned at the top of the show, nuclear power has always been problematic because of its inherent danger. Pilgrim suffered several near disasters as safety systems inevitably and eventually failed, causing a scram, an emergency shutdown of a nuclear reactor to prevent a disaster. Nuclear power has developed a bad reputation. 
the industry does it to themselves. The cancer rates, the cancer study, the scrams, the threat to public safety. It's all right out front for people to understand. The problem is not only are they killing us, but they're also hurting our democracy because people have been writing letters, petitions, protests, and we're still pushing a big boulder up a hill. Luckily, the Cape is kind of a unique area because of our geography. So, you know, the, the 15 towns are like one big town. So we, we do a lot of um, ballot initiatives where we can get the voters on our side. And it's like a, a golden apple on a silver plate for our legislators to say, here, the voters support this. But we don't see that transfer into action. That's our problem right now. All the towns on the Cape and along the coast of Cape Cod Bay voted over like 95%. No dumping in our bay. Downwind from the Pilgrim Power Plant lies Cape Cod, a long curved elbow of land stretching out into the Atlantic Ocean. It's a vacation paradise for millions because of its natural beauty and its easy access to beautiful beaches, both on Cape Cod Bay on the North Shore and the Atlantic on the South and East. The town of Sandwich is the first one you come to on the North Shore when you cross one of the two bridges that link Cape Cod to the mainland. The bridges are the only way out of Cape Cod. As the crow flies, part of Sandwich is in the 10-mile emergency planning zone, so they would have to evacuate. So we said, well, what happens to us on Cape Cod? You know, if the, we're the southeast, we're downwinders. The plume would more likely come down here than hit Plymouth. So we said, so what's what's up with us? And... Um, what we found out was they were closing the bridges to allow the evacuation of Plymouth and keeping us here. So again, I said, what's the plan? Oh, we don't know. So I went to the state police barracks right at the bridge and I said, could I have the emergency plan for Pilgrim um, for Cape Codders? And they said, well, we will get back to you. I said, I have a book. I'm going to sit here and I'll wait. Three hours later, they came out with the 99 plan, which I knew was said they were closing the bridges except for emergency vehicles only. It was hard to believe. In the event of an emergency at the nuclear power plant, the official plan was to close the bridges so no one could evacuate from Cape Cod, which would likely be directly in the path of the plume. So when we said they were closing the bridges, there was a kind of a, no, they're not, that can't happen. Well, we have it in writing. So then we got involved with the Barnesville County Emergency Planning Committee. They invited the um, director of the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency, Kurt Schwartz, to come down and tell us what the state was going to do. We have the transcript. I have it in the audio. And what he said was, the bridges will be closed. You won't be able to get off the Cape. We will come down and determine where the hotspots are and remove people. And he actually said, and just like at Fukushima, you won't be able to come home for a long time. Well, do you think that hit home with everyone? We were acceptable collateral damage to the profits of Entergy Corporation in the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant. And so people understood that. People understood the issue, and the people got organized. By the time Holtec purchased the Pilgrim Power Plant, there was widespread public scrutiny of what was going on. When Holtec came into town, um, the state had already formed the Nuclear Decommissioning Citizens Advisory Panel. And that was made up out of state officials, the Department of Environmental Protection, the Department of Public Health, governor's uh, appointee, and then some folks from the local community. And they were overseeing what's going on, although they only have an advisory role. 
Um, but it's a great opportunity for the public to come and ask questions and actually kind of nail Holtec uh, to what they're doing. Diane Turco has been at this for a while, and she's not about to stop now. The fight over dumping the radioactive wastewater into Cape Cod Bay has re-energized the community, and virtually everyone except Holtec is opposed. I thought when Pilgrim shut down, I could retire from this because I've been doing it so long. And But when I went to these meetings, I thought, oh no, we're getting into an even deeper hole with Holtec because there's something about this doublespeak here that just is not truthful. So Holtec signed the settlement agreement with the state of Massachusetts, and we're trying to hold them hold them to it. And so they have to comply with state laws. So there's no preemption. And our state laws say you can't dump radionuclides into a protected ocean sanctuary, period, and a subject. We have everyone and their mother, Senator Markey, Senator Warren, Representative Keating, Governor Healy, AGO Campbell, all the boards of selectmen, our Barnesville County Commissioners, the County Assembly of Delegates, the towns, the people, everyone is saying, do not dump in our bay. It's illegal. Use another option you have on your table, but do not dump. And none of the options are good, but dumping is illegal and the people are saying no. Diane Turco, founder and director of Cape Downwinders. You can learn more about the organization and their fight to protect the health and safety of the people of Cape Cod at their website, capedownwinders.info. I need to mention here that the people of Massachusetts are not the only ones dealing with Holtec and their plans to increase corporate profits by dumping radioactive waste into the environment. At the shuttered Indian Point power plant in Buchanan, New York, just north of New York City, the exact same scenario is playing out. Holtec is decommissioning the plant and is planning to dump, yes, you guessed it, one million gallons of radioactive wastewater into the Hudson River from which several nearby communities get their drinking water. For those of you who live in the New York City area, I'll put up a link for more information about this, including an expert forum that is taking place just as we're recording this show. I'll also put links to the work of Dr. Helen Caldicott for those who want to learn more. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of the show. Don't forget to tell your friends to follow Green Street News wherever they get their podcasts. Thanks for listening.